Bless our hearts by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. No, having some monster. You know how to. You can pull it down a little, Carol. In the house, just pull that slide down. The slide on my. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up Second Samuel, and we're going to continue going through the Word as we. Uh, Continue to look at an amazing time of history in the life of David. As we look at uh, the things that David's facing in, uh, in chapter 18 and 19, we see that David, through a series of choices, finds his family in turmoil. He made some bad decisions, and those decisions came home to roost. Uh, prophetically, he... he uttered his own judgment upon himself. Four of his sons are going to die. He said that the man who took that little ewe lamb would have to pay four times for what he did. And we see that occur in the life of David. His third son, really to, uh, to, to perish, is Absalom. And we saw last time Absalom in a place of rebellion against his dad. And as he was coming against his father... He's coming against God's anointed in Jerusalem. David does an amazing thing. I still think it's amazing. He just leaves. He just walks out of Jerusalem and says, Okay, it's all yours. Leaves his house there. The the folks who are, are true to him, they go with him. And as he's going on his way, he runs into a fellow named Shimei. Remember Shimei? He's the guy who cursed David along the way. And, and, uh, um, one of David's generals, he said, let me just go cut off his head. And David, that's what he said. Let me go cut off his head. David said, no, how do you know that that's not the voice of God against me for the things that I've done and the things that have happened? You leave him be. You leave him be. And I'll hear, I'll hear, I'll listen, I'll look for the fingerprints of God in every aspect of my life. And the really cool thing about David and that concept about being a man after God's own heart is that decision, that choice that says, I'm going to look for the fingerprints of God in every experience. Now, he didn't always do that, any more than we all always walk the way we ought to walk. But he would make a decision that says, I'm going to see. Remember when Saul was throwing spears at David? You don't ever read of David pulling a spear out of the wall and throwing it back. He just saw the fingerprints of God in the way Saul treated him. He saw the fingerprints of God throughout various aspects of his life. And you and I are faced with a similar challenge because we are going to face challenges in our life. We're going to face our own giants like Goliath or we're going to face our own forms of rebellion, maybe within our family, maybe outside of our family like, like David and Absalom, maybe within the family like Tamar and, and or, or later on he's going to face against Adonijah. But all of these struggles that he's going to deal with, 
he sees in them the hand of God. And we can choose that, or we can choose a different road. You know, I've shared before, early on in, in, in my walk with the Lord, I guess, whenever something bad would happen, I would say, God hates me. It was God's judgment. It was God causing this, whatever it was, an accident, a ticket. Uh, usually it wasn't a big thing. It was usually some little thing that, that you know, knocked the emperor off his groove and so he was irritated and he would say, oh, God hates me. That's not being willing to see the fingerprints of God in the, in the experiences that I have. But when I am willing to say this event, this thing, this, this word that somebody shared with me, this uh, prayer that somebody gave for me, this, whatever it might be, if I'm willing to see the fingerprints of God, man, it is two things that accomplishes in my life. It really sets me free from whatever the circumstances are of this challenge, of this thing that we face. Sets me free from the burden of it. It was never mine in, intended for me to carry anyway. I, in my own, on my own, in my flesh, can do nothing. Paul said, I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. And just in case you're thinking right now, your flesh is somehow better than mine, uh, it's not. The Word says... In our flesh, in our own ability to do something right, nothing good. Selfishness lives there. Uh, uh, conceit lives there. Pride lives there. All these things that are going to rise up against the work that the Spirit wants to accomplish in our life. Well, David, in the willingness to see the fingerprints of God, was, willing to, was able to be set free from the burden of carrying or accomplishing the task on his own, and also he was able to enter into a time, a special time of trusting God. You ever been somewhere in your life where there's nothing you can do to fix it? Whenever you find yourself backed into a corner and all the decisions, you've tried maybe everything, but you come to a point where you're at the end of yourself and there's nothing I can do to fix it. When you finally enter into the peace of turning that over to God and asking God to... to Work on your behalf. Giving it to Him. Lord, I can't fix this. I can't solve this. I can't do anything with it. When we do that, oh my goodness, there's so much freedom there. There's so much freedom in knowing that the one who holds the universe in His hands is also the one, according to the book of Colossians, that holds your life together. See, the Bible says that in Him all things consist. And remember our study in the Greek, all things means... All things. All means all, and that's all that all means. So everything, He holds it all. It consists within His hand. When my life is unraveling, it's not unraveling outside of His hand. His hand is there. His, he, is, he is there working and moving in my life. And, and I think David understands some of this, but as we come to chapter 18, we see that, that uh, there, the, the Ahithophel's um, counsel has been upset, turned to foolishness by the hand of God working through Hushai. He's, he's turned the, the counsel of, of Ahithophel. We saw Ahithophel commit suicide. And we saw last time how he becomes a type of Judas. He becomes an example of Judas. But in chapter 18, we're going to see how David moves forward now toward the battle that is coming between father and son. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, 
And David numbered the people who were with him. And he set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David set out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. Now, he divides his army into thirds. I don't want you to miss it. You have Joab and his brother Abishai, who have been a thorn in the side of David forever. They get the job done, but they get the job done their way, in their strength and in their power. The third guy, Ittai, is a Philistine. Remember when David, when Saul and Jonathan were having that last battle, and David was staying in the land of Philistia and Gath, and, and by the providence of God, the Philistines didn't send David to that battle? And so Saul and Jonathan are destroyed, David hears it, he leaves the, the land of the Philistines. Well, later on, Ittai followed him. Ittai followed David. That's a Philistine, a Gentile. And the Gittite army are Philistines. They are who, those who had at one time been Israel's enemy. But now because of the, the witness of David in his life, he's there with the army of God. With the army of the Lord. It's kind of neat to see the, the hand of God moving and working in the lives of of people who at one time had been enemies of God, and to see them come alongside and be a part of the army. Not just a part. Remember when Ittai, when David saw Ittai come with him, following him out of Jerusalem, he said, what are you doing? You've only been here a few days, man. He's not going to, he has no beef with you. Just stay. And Ittai says, no, man, I'm going where you go. I'm with you. And so Ittai ends up being or leading a third of David's army. However big that army may have been. Scripture's not going to lay it out for us here. But he, he lets us know that Ittai was part of it. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. Now, that's David having learned the lesson that he should have had back with Bathsheba. Remember? And the days when the kings went out to war, David decided he didn't want to go. He stayed home. He didn't stay busy. He didn't keep moving. He wasn't still serving the Lord. And when he entered into a time of not serving, of retiring, if you will, in his desire to serve, he fell into sin. Now David's like, hey, I'm not staying home. I'm coming. I'm going to be with you. But the scripture tells us, but the people answered and said, you shall not go out. For if we flee away... They will not care about us, nor if half of us die will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. The the soldiers said no. Nah, all they want to do is kill you. They're not really even after us. They just want to kill you. So we want you in the city. We want you where we can be a part of keeping you safe, where we can watch over and make sure that you're going to be alright. So in verse 4 it says, The king said to them, So whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. 
Now the king had commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So David stands at the gate, and all the warriors are walking out the gate. And as each leader would walk by, he would speak to each one, Deal gently with my son Absalom. Deal gently with my son Absalom. Deal gently with my son Absalom. Everybody who walked by, this is the challenge that he would lay out for them. Because Absalom is his son, one. And two, Absalom is in an unregenerate state. You're going to see David treat Absalom totally different than David treated his baby who died. And the difference is the eternal state of the soul at the time they died. David's call to his men, and I believe it to be a spiritual call that David's trying to to let them know, be gentle with my son. Now they all want to kill him. They all want to kill him about what he's done. Because let's face it, which of us as sinners does not deserve death? We all deserve death. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him. But David's heart is that he would live. That he would have an opportunity. That there could be reconciliation. Even after all the stuff Absalom done. When Jesus comes, what is it that they called him? The son of who? The son of David. That phrase, the son of, means he has the character. He carries within him the character of David. That character. David's a picture for us. Of Messiah. What does the scripture lay out for us in Ezekiel? That God does not glory in the destruction of the wicked. But that the wicked would turn and live. So as each of his soldiers are going by. This is the call that David's making to them. He's saying concerning his son Absalom. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. So David's decided where the battlefield would take place. So the concept is, if we fight in a confined area, it doesn't matter that they have more than us. If we fight in an open field, we can be overwhelmed, surrounded. You see the, the very same things, uh, a part of the battle that was part of the, the, the battle of Thermopylae. The concept of fighting in a confined area with a bigger force means that you are more able to do battle. So they fought in the woods. It's the first time the children of Israel ever had jungle warfare. Sort of. We see, you remember when David hid in the caves? And the Bible tells us that, that people came to him, the, the disgruntled, and they become the mighty men of David. They become that mighty fighting force, those 600 men that were with him everywhere. You know, those guys fought in everything. They fought in wars for the Philistines. They fought in wars for Israel. They fought in caves. They fought in woods. They fought everywhere. But Absalom, he comes in and, if you will, all the veterans of the army go with David. And all the young guys who don't have any experience stay with Absalom. So they don't know. They don't have the experience of being in the woods. And David's men do. So David chooses the battlefield. We're going to fight in the woods of Ephraim. We're going to fight there in that place. So the people of Israel 
were overthrown there before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. It's one of these, this is one of the victories that you see in the Bible. There's not going to be a lot of rejoicing over. Because (laughs) you're talking about Israel killing Israel. So you slaughtered 20,000 of your brothers. It's a civil war. In, In order that there would be no battle, David just walked away. But Absalom, so filled with his own pride and his own uh, desire for glory, continues to follow David, pressing the battle. There's going to be a fight. David's got to die. That'll be the only way I can be the one and only true king of Israel. So he presses it. The battle comes. 20,000, 20,000, and I don't think Absalom cared at all. But I know David did. So I can read the Psalms. I can read the poems that he wrote about this time in his life. The feelings that he would have over his own sin ultimately leading him to this point. I mean, it would be easy for him to point the finger at Absalom and look what Absalom's done. But every time we point our finger, what's the saying? You have three more pointing back at you? Because that road that Absalom's on started with a sin against Bathsheba and Absalom watching his father do whatever he wanted to do to get what he wanted so Absalom's just doing whatever he wants to do to get what he wants he's walking in dad's footsteps so I'm sure that for David the weight of the 20,000 souls that die in that place I'm sure that that weighs on him. The the Bible says in verse 8, For the battle was scattered over the face of the whole countryside. Listen to this. And the woods devoured more people that day than the sword. Well, that's how I know God was there. There's a, a story of a battle with Joshua. You remember? The battle with Joshua, the Lord sends hailstones, and the scripture says much the same thing. The people that were devoured by the hailstones were more than those who were devoured by the sword. In this case, it says the woods devoured them. They, they've run into trees. We know that's what's going to happen to Absalom in a, in a little while. They, they fall into pits. They, whatever occurs, the injuries and the things that they suffer, there was more of them because of the woods than there was because of the soldiers that were there, that were there chasing him. The scripture says in verse 9, So Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode on a mule. Now that was a sign of his kingliness. Now we know that a a king headed to war rode on a white stallion, a white horse. But a king coming in peace would ride on a mule. Absalom didn't really care about that concept. He was pretty sure that the battle was foregone conclusion. He had the younger guys... He had the, the, the more, the larger army. And so he, he's riding on a mule. He's coming in on a mule because that speaks of him as the king. It's a symbol. It's a symbol to everybody around him. It's Absalom, the king, riding on that, riding on that mule. So, Scripture says that the mule went under a thick bow of a great terebinth tree. And his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. The symbol 
of him being king just rides away. And the symbol in his life of his pride and arrogance has him hanging in a tree. It provides quite a few interesting pictures. The Bible tells us that the handwriting of requirements that was against us has been taken out of the way by Jesus Christ. It has been nailed to the cross. Jesus nailed those things to the cross. In his body, he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. The pride and arrogance that is ultimately going to be the destruction of Absalom, hanging him in a tree, Jesus is going to nail pride, arrogance, sin. He's going to become that and die on the tree so that we never again have to be hung by our own sin, by our own arrogance, by our own pride. Jesus is going to remove that. But here you see Him hanging in that place. And, the, and, the, and what brought Him to that place? This little mule. This mule who runs off. The mule symbolizing the loss of all that stuff that He thought was so important up until that moment. But there He is. It's as though the hands of God working through a terebinth tree, found a way to grab David's son and suspend him so that somebody could come and get him. You ever try to fight hanging by your hair? I'm thinking that's rough. Don't worry, Fritz, I'm not going to say nothing. <laughs> hanging, by, hanging by his hair. Well, let's look what happens. The scripture goes on to tell us then, Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in the terebinth tree. You can see the conversation, right? You're never going to believe what I just saw. What did you just see? Absalom's hanging in a tree by his hair over there. He's what? No, really. He's, he's hanging by his hair. So Joab said to the man, verse 11, Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. Joab is such a great picture of the flesh. Always a desire to get ahead. And he's to this guy. Now every remember I told you, every one of the soldiers who are marching by, by every one of their captains, captains of hundreds, captains of thousands, have heard David say, Be gentle with my son. Be gentle with my son. And we see the hand of God grab Absalom by the hair and hang him from a tree. So he's no threat. But then the flesh gets in the way. Going to help God out. Joab says to this soldier, I'd have given you gold and prestige. The concept of this belt, this girdle, would have been something that set him apart. It's like getting a promotion in the army. Joab's the general running things. But this particular soldier, he knows what, the, what, what it was that David said. It said, but the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. I won't disobey what David said. 
I won't kill him. Victory could have been won right there. Absalom's taken. Maybe Absalom never chooses to reconcile. Maybe he does. We'll never know. Because that's not the path that was, was chosen. But don't you see that's the path that the king wanted? Reconciliation with his children? Isn't that the path that the Lord wants with, with us? You know, the scripture declares to us, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. How often do we allow him to do that? I, I, I mean, I know myself. I, I struggle with those concepts. I remember years back when uh, the whole Jeffrey Dahmer thing was going on. You guys remember that, yeah? And I remember thinking, man, they just need to take that guy out and kill him. Is that what the king wanted? The Bible says, I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and repent. Now, God does require blood for blood. By, by, if a man takes another man's life, his life is to be forfeit. But it does not mean that there's not an opportunity in that time for reconciliation. I don't know Jeffrey Dahmer's heart. There are those who say he received the Lord prior to being beat to death in prison. Turn on my news yet or the the news the other day, and I'm watching something that like similar to me in Colorado of a guy kicking into a theater and throwing tear gas and shooting everybody. Thirteen counts of murder, I think. Fifty some counts of attempted murder. However many people were ultimately in in that theater. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. Let me work. Now I could say, a guy needs to die and shoot him. They had no opportunity for reconciliation. And I have sat in his life as judge, jury, and executioner. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve the death penalty. But he deserves the opportunity to... Make peace. That's what a word says. Vengeance is mine. That's what David said to Absalom. Don't kill him. If you kill him, you are going to establish his everlasting state in a place of being lost forever. Joab tries to bribe this guy, but this guy won't do it. But listen. So, ultimately, Joab gets up and does it. It says, For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, Beware, lest anyone touch young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Now he knows Joab. Joab only does what's good for him. So if this other dude had killed Absalom, Joab could have killed him and looked good to the king. And Joab would have got his cake and ate it too. Absalom's dead and I didn't have to do it. But that's not what takes place. So Joab says, I can't linger, I can't waste my time with you anymore. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart. 
while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel for Joab held back the people. He blows the trumpet. Now remember, when we study the scriptures, understand that the blast of the trumpet held significance for the army. There was a sound that gathered the army together. The Bible say he blew the trumpet and the army gathered. He blows the trumpet and the army charges. He blows the trumpet and the army stops. That was how they signaled the army to do those things. So when we read in scripture different areas that speak of the trumpet, the blast of the trumpet, keep those things in mind. It's talking in the same context as giving orders to the army to gather, to come, to charge, whatever the case may be, whatever scripture demands in that context as we look at it. So he blows the trumpet and stops the armies. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and, and laid a very large heap of stones over him. And all of Israel fled, everyone to his tent. So the army disperses. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Remember, earlier we read about Absalom having three sons. His three sons must have died. When they died, he set up a pillar that he might be remembered by this monument. By the way, when you go to Israel today, in the Kidron Valley, there's a monument they call Absalom's Monument. That's not it. That was built in about 100 A.D., which is quite um, a few years after the time of Absalom. So it, it's got that name, but that's not the monument that, that we're reading about here that it, Absalom built for himself. So he builds this great monument, but his burial is in a pit somewhere in the woods, and it's unmarked. Nobody knows where. <clears throat> then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him on his enemies. But Joab said to him, You will not take news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today... You will take no news because the king's son is dead. Joab, when, when Ahimaaz comes, who's the son of Zadok, Zadok who's going to become the lineage of the high priest uh, through which the high priest would still flow today from Aaron, but, but bypassing the lineage of Eli. Zadok, his son, wants to go tell David the good news. But Joab says, listen, he remembers a couple of guys. Maybe you remember the story when Saul was dead. And ran in and thought to tell David good news about his enemy and his destruction. And remember how that turned out for him? Yeah, he ended up dead. And then there was another fella. Did the same thing. He ends up dead. So Joab says to Ahimaaz, who's the, who's the messenger, I'm not going to send you. I'm not going to send you. This is not good news for the king. So he doesn't want to send him. So it says, Joab said to the Cushite. Now you notice... Cushite is an Ethiopian. He has no name. He's just the Cushite. So we don't really care if David gets mad at the Cushite and kills him. We'll send him. You know, let's, let's get Mikey. He eats anything. So they send the Cushite. The Cushite takes off to go tell the king what he has seen. So the Cushite bailed himself to Joab and ran. But Ahimaaz, he's like, he wants to go. 
And, and so it says, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Whatever happens, please let me run also after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run since you have no news? We don't have nothing new. I already sent the Cushite. He's going to tell David everything. You don't need to go. But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So finally he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So Ahimaaz knows a shortcut. So the, Cush, the Cushite has already left. Ahimaaz takes off running and he's headed for the king. He wants to tell the king. He wants to be the first one to give the king the good news. They're rejoicing that the battle is over and he wants to bring that news to the king. So it says in verse 24, Now David was sitting between two gates, and the watchman went up on the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked. And there was a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king. And the king said, If he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, There's another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king says, he's a good man. He comes with good news. So Ahimaaz, he called out and said to the king, All is well. And he bowed down with his face to the earth. And the king said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? He's not worried about the battle. He's worried about his boy. How's Absalom? Is he okay? Is he okay? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I do not know what it was about. He lied. He doesn't want to tell the king his son's dead. He wanted to run and give him the good news of the battle, but he doesn't want to tell him the truth. He doesn't want to tell him everything that there is to see. The Cushite's going to come in. It says just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is a young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went to his chamber. You got two guys bringing the news. Ahimaaz, he's faster, gets there quicker, more well known. And the Cushite, both have a word to give. One of them doesn't want to give it all. He just gives a part. The other one, no matter how painful it was or wasn't, was faithful to deliver the word. When we look at the light of these two messengers, I guess my question when I look at them is, which one am I? Ahimaaz? I just want to tell you the good stuff. What the word says... All those verses we like to hang on our refrigerator? Or am I the Cushite? 
want to tell you the whole counsel of God. What does God's word say? Hey, there's a lot of things I'd like to just uh, pretend weren't there. Let's just say that's not there anymore and let's just pretend it's all good. And then we would have no disagreements and everything would be okay. But it would be a lie. Word of God is either true or it's false. If it's true, it's all true. Every drop. If it's a lie, it's all a lie. Throw it out. I want to be the messenger that's going to give the whole word. What does the word say? What does God's word teach us? What does it tell us about the nature of man? What does it tell us about how God would have us live? How we should walk? What we should do? The whole counsel. I want to be like that Cushite. He, don't, he doesn't know David from anybody else. He knows Joab said give the message. He gave the message. And that's how we want to deliver the word. It's what God's word says. It's what God's word says. Oftentimes people look at God's word and they, they get these crazy ideas. You know, they say, well... The Word of God can be interpreted many different ways. Well, let me solve that for you in a real basic sense. The Word of God was gifted to us in something called the Koine Greek, Common Greek, which translates exact thought. In the Word of God, there is only one interpretation. There are many applications. How do I apply that truth in my life? But there is one interpretation. What it says, it says. And you have to do violence to the text to make it say something else. So there we have, we're we're given the truth. And every one of us is one of those messengers. You're going to go from this place and bring the message of the word that God's laid on your heart to somebody. What part are you going to give them? Whole truth? Part of the truth? A snack? Or as much as the Lord would lay on your heart? Sometimes when you tell somebody the truth, this happens. Sometimes you tell them the truth and the king was deeply moved and went up to his chamber over the gate and he wept and as he went, he cried and he cried out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Anybody who's ever lost a child say the same thing. Anybody. Especially in this case. Because David's looking at it and recognizing that my son made his own choices and is responsible for his choices. But I started that path. I started that all those years ago with Bathsheba. But if you back up, you guys remember when Nathan came to David, right? And he told David the parable. He said to David, there's a man in your kingdom 
who has this little ewe lamb. It's so close to him. It's like one of his own children. He even eats at his table. It hangs out with him, goes everywhere with him. And his next door neighbor is a very wealthy man, has many herds, many flocks. And one day a man came to visit the wealthy neighbor. And the wealthy neighbor took that other man's one ewe lamb and he killed it and he fed it to his friends. What should we do to that man? And David said, that man shall pay four times for what he did and he shall die. Remember what Nathan said, right? You're the man. Four sons. The first one was that baby. Bathsheba had a child. You remember when that child was sick, what David did? He laid on the ground and cried out and prayed for that baby. And he prayed, Lord, that the Lord might be merciful. And the Lord would change his decision. And that God would, would relent. And that the baby would live. And when the baby died, you remember, all the servants were gathered there. And they come around David. And they're all fighting among themselves. You tell him. I'm not going to tell him. You tell him. I don't want to tell him. Look how crazy he is right now. The baby's just sick. If we tell him the baby's dead, he's going to fall utterly apart. Finally, David sees him at the door. And he lifts up his head and he says, is the baby dead? And they said, yes. The Bible says he got up. And he changed his clothes and he washed his face and he sat down at the table to eat. And the servants came to him and they said, My Lord King, why when the baby was sick did you go through all this, this labor? But now that the baby's dead... It seems like you're just going on. And David's response was, well, while the, baby was, while the baby was sick, I didn't know whether or not God might relent and that God would allow him to live. And so I cry out to the Lord that God would move his hand in the baby's life and that maybe healing or, or the touch of the Lord would come. But the Lord said no. And then David said, My baby can't come to me, but I will go to him. See, David knew. David knew that baby was in the eternal arms of the Savior. And so in death, the baby's okay. He's not here with us, and so we mourn the absence. But he looked forward to the joy that one day he would have and when he would be in that same place, when that relationship that was lost could be found again in Christ. But when he gets the news about Absalom, he cries, he weeps, he falls apart utterly. Because Absalom's lost. He lost. No opportunity for reconciliation. No opportunity for a change of heart. It's just over. And David weeps. And he longs to trade places. If there be any way. If I could have died for him. I'm sure David... Today, if you could talk to him, would say the same thing. If there was any way, I could have died. I'd rather I died and Absalom lived. Not just to live his life, but live before the Lord. 
There is no greater joy, the Apostle John wrote, than to know that my children walk with the Lord. Because that is eternal life. It's the most important thing. Not how great a job they got, or how big your house is, or how much money they make. Are they walking with the Lord? Do they know Him? Scripture says in in chapter 19, Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day the king is grieved for his son. With no joy, no big victory party. King's hearts broke for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day. They snuck back into the city. No parade. They just come slinking back in. And as they walked through the gate, they would hear the cries of their king. In a room up above, weeping for his son. Occasionally we sing a song in worship here that has a line in it. I love the line. It says that he would that we would he would break our heart for what breaks his. I long for that, that we would that we would in the Lord have our hearts broken for what breaks his. For that loss. Not saying that the other is not important. They all are. Every life. Especially every life lost in the absence of a relationship with the Lord. So every soldier, as they came into the city, as they'd be walking in, they'd be laughing and saying, Man, you know, we did good. The the battle's over. And they did do good. And they were good soldiers. And they did right. But as they walked through this gate, all they can hear is the weeping of their king. So they told Joab. They told Joab. Scripture says, But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So Joab came into the house to the king. And he said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. Remember I tell you, Joab's a picture of the flesh. And that's how the flesh looks at the broken heart of God. You love your enemies and you hate your friends. You know, ever since I gave my life to Jesus, my life's been hard. Stuff goes wrong. All the dreams and plans I had, they don't all come together. Sometimes my friends and family still die. But I look out there at them other people. Living their life in the world. They seem to be fine. And here we are suffering. It's not right. And that's, that's the voice of the flesh. Because eternally, all those who love Christ Jesus 
are okay. All of them. No matter how hard life is, no matter how many hurts we go through, you are eternally secure in the love of Christ and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not the sword, not pestilence, not famine, not suffering, nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, His Son. Nothing. But those people out there, if, if their life ends, they go to eternity without Christ. They go to a, an eternity that we can't even imagine. That one day in, in some place in the universe, God's going to gather together all the living and the dead, and they're going to stand before a great white throne. And the church will be there. The church already clothed in right, already in sinless perfection, standing there beside the throne as person after person, every person who ever lived without Christ, without salvation, will stand and have their time before Almighty God. And as they go, one by one, they'll each do two things. They'll bow a knee to Jesus Christ. And they'll proclaim that God's judgment is right. Every man will be without excuse. Because God is a perfect judge. If you're in that line, you're in that line for a reason. And then, the living and the dead will be cast into the lake of fire. Which was created for the devil and his angels. Not for anybody else. A place of utter destruction from the presence of God forever. No hope of redemption. It's just done. And it's at, after that moment that the Bible says that God will wipe away every tear in our eye. Because that's not going to be an easy time. I don't care who you are. Sure, we'll be okay. And all those people we looked at and maybe we thought their lives were better or easier or they didn't have to go through the same stuff we did are in a line that goes to eternal punishment. And I don't know what I'll know then. I know that after that, after every... Every tear is wiped. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new life forever. And all the old things will pass away and everything will become new. But that doesn't mean that if I'm standing in that line and I see my neighbor go by, that I won't remember. I knew him. I remember thinking when I looked at his life how good it was and how bad mine was. And look where I'm at today. I was wrong. That's how the flesh sees. The Word of God calls us to see the eternal, not the temporal. 
That means see what you have in Christ. See the eternity that you have. See the blessings that you already have seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. They're already yours. They're yours. They're yours now. They're yours. Instead of looking at the discomfort and the problems and the broken down cars or lost jobs or the sick family or the child that the Lord took. Look at what you have in Christ. Look at what you have. A future. A hope. Joab can't see none of that stuff because he's the eyes of the flesh. He's the eyes of the flesh. And he comes to David and, and he's, he's upset. He's upset. We want a victory, David, and you're in here crying. You love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes or servants. For today I perceive if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, then it would have pleased you well. We don't know. It's not David's words. This is Joab's words. This is the way the arguments of the flesh go. The ridiculous part of the argument is David doesn't want anybody to die. If David wanted someone to die, he'd have stayed in Jerusalem and fought. He just walked away. Absalom pushed the fight. If Absalom never came to the woods, there never would have been a fight. Absalom was following the words of the flesh, the desire of his heart, the, the pride of life. He's, he's off just listening to the wrong voices. Running down the path of destruction. What's the Bible say? How's the path of destruction? Narrow and hard to find? <laughs> Wide and easy to find, right? Well, he goes on to say, verse 7, Now therefore arise, go out, speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. So Joab's threatening the king. So the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, There is a king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king. For everyone in Israel had fled to his tent. So there's the king in the gate. Then say, there's a king in the gate, happy and gleeful and smiling. But the king went out to the gate. King went out to the gate. King went out to the gate. Then we get to see a little picture of what it means to be God's anointed. Because sometimes God calls His anointed to stop mourning and stop crying and get to serving. Ezekiel the prophet. The Lord told him, your wife is going to die. And when she dies, don't you mourn. You preach. And that's what Ezekiel did. Why? Because he's the anointed. His wife's okay. She's okay. She's not in hell. She's all right. She's in the hands of God. Stop mourning. Start serving. In the book of Leviticus, 
Um, the Bible tells us when Aaron, when Aaron's two sons, you remember his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were consumed because they brought strange fire. God said to Aaron, "Stop mourning. Don't mourn. Serve. Your God's anointed." Your God's anointed. Show them. Show them. We got to keep moving forward. If you guys were here when Brent died, you saw Mary Lee do it. If you were in Yucca when Cindy died, we saw Gerald do it. When your God's anointed, sometimes God says, Stop mourning and go be with the people. Mourn in private, but in public, minister to the people. Because they don't understand. The soldiers walking in the gate, they don't know why David's crying. You and I can talk about types and pictures and how it looks like Christ and his desire for the lost. But the soldier walking through the gate only knows his king's crying. He don't understand the whys and the wherefore. So God says, David, you're my anointed. To whom much is given, what's the scripture say? Much is required. You have responsibility, David. Stop mourning. Stop mourning. Go be with the people. So he stops. He goes and sits in the gate. Who did that word come through? Joab. Well-known servant of the Lord, right? Oh, no, Joab. He's a pain in the patunka. Uh, one of the first things that David is going to tell Solomon is when you become king, kill Joab. He's bad. And truly... Joab was already starting a, 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 a revolution against, a revolt against Solomon. And so Solomon did what his dad said. Kill Joab. He's not any good. But remember I told you in the beginning, David was willing to see the fingerprints of God where? Most places? All over. Is, is God only able to speak in your life through a believer? I don't know if the donkey was a believer for Balaam or not. But I know that the Lord spoke through that donkey. Well, it didn't help Balaam. He still didn't listen. But the Lord spoke to him. David chose to sing the fingerprints of God in what Joab said. And so he stopped making a spectacle and mourning where all the people's hearts would fail them. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And look at the king and what's going on. And he said, no, David, it's time for you to be my anointed. Now he heard those words through the harsh words of Joab, saying, what's wrong with you? Get up here, get out and stop crying and stop being. But he was willing, just like in Shimei, to see in the words of Joab, the fingerprints of God. Is this you, Lord? You know... We don't have to wander around saying, is this you, Lord? The Bible says that, that the Spirit will confirm with our spirit. That's one check. And that it will line up with the Word of God. That's two. If we follow those two, we won't fly off the handle following some crazy weird thing.
Is it in the Word? Yeah, here it is right here. Is the Lord confirming it by the Spirit in your spirit? Yeah, I feel like this is really God's Word for me. I've, I've received that before. Twice in my life from people I would never expect to hear the, the, the Word of God from. Who had no intention of telling me God's Word for me at that moment. But it doesn't change that it was. Because it lined up with the Word. And it lined up with what God's Spirit was telling me. Yeah, I need to do that. So David went out. Joab, he saw the fingerprints of God in Joab. While we're thinking about that, just so as far as we're going to go in 2 Samuel, but turn over to the book of Philippians, because I was just going through Philippians chapter 4 today. Probably one of my favorite sections of Scripture. But the whole concept of the book of Philippians, remember, is that idea of having the mind of Christ, choosing to have the mind of Christ. Choosing to look at my circumstances like he does. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, what's he say? Meditate on these things. Meditate on those. What do we tend to do? Meditate on the garbage. Meditate on the trash. Chew the cud on all the stuff that we're supposed to spit out. That we're supposed to spit out. Hey, it's okay for David to mourn. I get it. I think God's heart breaks for those same things. I think they do. But his call to us is not to meditate on that which we have lost. It's to meditate on that which we have gained. The good and eternity with your Savior, Jesus Christ. A God whose love you can do nothing to lose. A God who promises to never leave you or forsake you. A God who promises you, his called, that he will work all things together for good. Remember that lesson in Greek, right? All means all and what? That's all all means. So when the Bible says all things work together for good, what's it mean? Oh, yeah, all things. All of it. The most horrible, wretched thing you can imagine. God's promise is he will bring good from it. Nothing good can come from that. That's not what the Word says. The Word says for those who are called, for those who are part of the family of God, That's the promise that God gives. Meditate on the pure, the lovely, the things that are of good report. Focus on the blessings and the benefits of Christ and not on the struggle. Because Paul said, This present suffering is not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in him. This present suffering, not worthy to be compared. And by the way, trust me, there's nobody in here who suffered like Paul. But Paul said his suffering wasn't even worth being compared at all. With the glory, with the with the beauty, with the majesty that we have in Christ. 
And it utterly changes everything about us when we choose to be that person. We choose to be that person. When I recognize I'm meditating on the bad, I'm focusing on what is lost. I've shared with you before. I remember things I did wrong. I remember not witnessing to my grandparents. I can't go back and do it now. So what's the Bible say? Paul says, not that I have already apprehended, but what does he do? Forgetting the past, I press on toward the Lord Jesus Christ and His calling. I move toward Him. I use that to teach me, but I don't live in the failure. If I sit around and meditate on that, how long before my joy is utterly gone? Doesn't take very long. But if I learn from the mistakes and I move forward toward my Lord and His love that says to me, Jackie, even though you messed up, nothing will separate me from His love. Nothing. Paul goes on to say in Philippians chapter 4, He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I have learned to be abased, and I have learned to abound. What Paul is saying is, no matter whether he was in prison being beaten, or on the corner preaching, it didn't change his mind about the glory which shall be revealed. See, that was his hope. And that's what we have to remember. Hold on to our hope. Allow the failures of our past and the struggles that we go through to train us. But don't live in them. Move forward to the victory. You haven't even begun to imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into your hearts the, thing has, the things that God has planned for those who love Him. Hold on to your hope. And you won't lose heart. And you will walk in joy. And then you can proclaim, even as Paul did, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I don't have to be afraid of them. What can they do to me? Nothing. I'm in God's hands. It's a key for us to be men and women after God's own heart. Amen? you stand with me let's pray heavenly father lord god we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word we thank you for the chance to to just see what happened in the life of david and hopefully make application to our lives lord that there are things that we can recognize the pain and the hurt in the heart of god and there are times that we can recognize that you're calling us to be examples to be a good witness in the things that we go through. Father, ultimately the desire of our heart, God, is just that you would be our treasure. That you would help us to overcome the struggles in our life. That our eyes would not be on what we don't have, but on what we do. That we would learn to walk in joy. 
Because joy is my choice. I can choose it. I can choose to meditate on the good. I can choose to focus on what I have. I can choose to take the opportunity that you give me. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be towards you. Father, that you would move in this place in a mighty way, Lord God, that we might glorify your name in all we say and do, Lord. And as we go from here, help us see the fingerprints of God in every aspect of our life. For truly, you are moving today, just as you did then. And if we will have eyes to see, we will see. If we will have ears to hear, we will hear. And I pray that our heart would receive and understand the work that you do in us. As we give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out tonight in a word of worship. I invite you to hang out and worship with us. We also have some cookies out there. If someone will tie up Noe, we'll all get to have some. Oh, it's too late. It's too late already. I'll meet you guys out in the foyer or around the cookies. God bless you. Have a great night. Thank you.
stand against Lord uh, you are awesome in power Lord you loved us before the foundation of the world Lord you picked us Lord uh, what a small thing that we should serve you what a small thing that we would say we love you but that you loved us Lord and you gave us your son for us sitting before you Lord you took the cross Lord what an awesome thing Lord go with us Lord as we fellowship Lord may we go out in your power and your might Lord Jesus Amen